It's Jonah Bud. I've been working with young people and adults for more than 40 years, helping them to live their best life. Now on this podcast, I do it for you too. That's what we call it, At Your Best. So I can help you become your best self each week. So let's explore stories from all across Canada and celebrate how strong we really are, even when we feel at our weakest. On this episode, we start off talking about how kindness and love could be enough to keep you alive, like it did with a woman who was taken hostage by Hamas. We also speak with a survivor of sexual assault, who after a 10-year battle finally has received some justice. We also talk about the dangers of addicting junk foods, touch on the adverse health effects of cannabis, and how one man who worked for the same company for over 50 years has only one regret. How's that even possible? Well, only one way to find out. Sit back, relax, and get ready to listen to ways we can help make you be at your best. Now we're going to talk about um, kindness, right? How to overcome evil with kindness. And, and you know, I, I'm sure you've, you're all still paying attention to the media and to the listening to radio news and watching TV news and reading, you know, whatever is available in written form. Um, so it's really important that we try to balance all the negative input with some, you know, positivity, some stories of kindness and goodness. And, and that's what we're trying to do here. You know, that's where we're trying to kind of stay off the, the, the beaten track of all these horror stories that we hear about and the, 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 the terrible battles on both sides of, of the equation and loss of life in both sides of the equation. And just <clears throat> without getting into all that, we're going to just try to focus a little bit on positivity and some interesting stories and stories of kindness and goodness and so on. So imagine, here's the story. Imagine my grandmother, she goes out shopping. She leaves one morning, 9, 9.30. She goes out shopping. She comes back. You know, she's what, 70, 75 at that point, which in those days, you know, when I was a kid, that, that was old. Uh, now it's not so much, right? But 70, 75 years old, you know, she's walking, the, walking back from the, from the grocery store and she notices that her front door is a little bit open, just a little bit open. And she walks into her apartment, and lo and behold, there's two bad guys sitting in the living room. Okay? One bad guy looks at her. The other bad guy looks at her. One, of, She says something to one of them. One of them smacks her in the face, knocks her to the ground. And when she's here on the ground, she can hear my grandmother. Uh, on my father's side was Russian. She could hear in broken Russian, in this case, broken Russian, how this man suggests that uh, this woman, she's, uh, you know, like my grandmother. She's the same age as my mother, my grandmother, like my, you know. And she understands this. And while these bad guys are sitting in her living room, clearly to cause some harm and make it difficult for her and probably cause her, you know, to lose and you know, have everything taken and so on, lose everything she has and everything taken. So she begins to talk with them and offers them snacks, something to eat, perhaps use the bathroom, anything I can do to help, tells them stories, sings them Russian songs for several hours until such time as she could be rescued. Well, I don't know. My grandmother and my mother, may she rest in peace, both of those ladies knew how to solve a problem with food. It was always food. It was always sit down, have something to eat, relax. We'll figure it out. You know, we'll, we'll get it all figured out. Just sit down, relax, take it easy, right? 
was always about food. I would go to my grandmother's house in the worst of my times as a teenager. And somehow she'd throw something together, some something to eat together. She used to make me my own soda from, from carbonated water and fruit. And by the time she figured, you know, put everything together and made my favorite snacks and meals and baked goods, my life at the time that I thought was falling apart wasn't so terrible. Something about old European women, in this case, old Jewish women, older Jewish women, Jewish mothers, not necessarily older, European mothers, women that grew up in cultures. We see it in, in, in other cultures as well. The one I'm familiar with is obviously Russian Jew and Polish Jew on my mother's side. And there, and, and there was always food, food for like always food. That was a solution to everything. Well, the story I want to come to right now is an interesting story because the one I was telling you about, I just made it up. Imagine if your grandmother was in that situation. That's where I want you to be. I want you to be in that place where you imagine your grandmother walking into a situation faced with bad guys sitting there waiting for them. Have a listen. I want you to have a listen to this clip. And, have, and then we're going to come back and talk about Rachel and what she did. I saw the food that you made for them. You made food. She knew that if they're hungry, they get mad. So she offered them food all the time. And she told them to relax. Well, there you go. So the story is about a woman named Rachel Edry. And she is an Israeli woman and lived in a um, in, in an Israeli settlement in a kibbutz outside of, or I believe the settlement, maybe not a kibbutz, uh, outside of uh, the area. When it was One of the areas was that was being attacked by the Hamas uh, militants on that uh, day that we remembered two weeks ago. And she walked into her kitchen and found these two bad guys standing there. She said something. One of them hit her with the butt of a rifle, knocked her to the ground. She started to talk to them. She looked at them holding, uh, you know, she could see that they were real people. She treated them as such, as she said in her interviews. And she knew that they were hungry. They were angry. They were irritated. And as a therapist, let me tell you, you know, the three things that you look at to make sure that you're in good, stable mental health is you're not, you're not hungry. You're not angry. You're not lonely. You're not tired. Right. She knew that if she fed them and that she provided some kindness to them, she might stay alive. She literally killed them with kindness. They didn't die, but she literally killed them with kindness, which kept her alive. So the question I have for you, call in right now if you're interested. The question is, have you ever done something, an act of kindness, that actually was able to diffuse a situation that you thought was going to blow up in your face? Maybe not loss of life. Right. I get that. Maybe not lots of life. But in this case, it kept her bad guys at bay for some 17 hours until her son and her and her husband, with, aided by local police, came back and rescued her and took the uh, and took the militants by uh, by surprise and took them into custody. No one died in that house that day. Un unlike many, many, many more homes and in other settlements across that part of, of Israel. But her kindness, 
her, her ability to think. Now, it's not just a fact of kindness here. It's actually pretty savvy, right? You know, they say, if God forbid, a million times you're ever abducted. They talk about, the, the experts talk about talking to the abductors, telling them who you are, that you have children, if that's the case, or what you do for a living, or what your favorite color. Let them know that you're a human humanizing yourself in in the in the midst of that type of a situation experts say can keep you alive she humanized these these men and and and, and one would assume i i can only assume one one would guess better than the word assume one would guess that these militants probably weren't much more than late teens early early 20s probably just kids most of them are and she did what she had to do she kept herself alive by providing them with kindness, with goodness, with the sense of belonging, with the warmth that they missed, I'm sure, from their mother or grandmother. And not to mention her Moroccan cookies and the tea and the fruit. And she provided them with food throughout the course of her abduction. Let's have some chat some conversations some warmth some love let's just keep sharing it we got karen in toronto karen what's up well my grandmother she actually could have been the lady that you described um in one of those scenarios she lived in the country and uh north of north of toronto and i lived in an old farmhouse by herself she was getting close to 90 and One day through the side porch, all of a sudden she was alone in her kitchen and there was a group of people came right in and um, basically they were not up to any good, but she had just baked rolls, but she was really smart. She went to the basement door, which you could never go down the stairs to the basement. I mean, picture really old farmhouse. I would never want to think of her going down those stairs anyway. And she yells, Yoo-hoo, Leslie, yoo-hoo, because that was my grandfather, but he'd been dead for over 30 years at that point. <laughs> but, Smart woman. Yes. So anyway, they took the buns, and they left, and she told them, don't come back, but they did. Um, and the next time, my dad had a business down the road, and he was able to get there the next time um, when they were there. I don't know exactly how that went down, except I know he got there, and he actually, he, he, he didn't call the police, but he told them, don't you ever come back here again, and they never did. So, <laughs> That's a great story. I, I, pre- I appreciate you sharing. Thanks, Karen. Thanks so much for You're calling and, uh, and, and for being a listener. Thanks so much. So the conversation is about kindness. How do you use kindness to overcome evil, right? That's kind of the whole that's kind of where I'm coming from right now is, is overcoming evil using kindness, overcoming uh, situations. In this case, the story that we're talking about, it's, it's a situation where someone actually saved her life by using that kind of kindness. If you didn't hear the first part of the segment, we're talking about a woman in Israel who found bad guys in her, in her living room and fed them and was kind to them and sang to them and told them stories until she could be rescued and they could be, uh, they could be, um, um, you know, arrested and, and taken into custody. So I want you to listen to something here for a minute. It's, it's, it's a poem. It's a poem. It's a poem called Kill Them With Love from a TED Talk, uh, Boana Mohammed. 
Um, have a quick listen. Ignorance leaves me to believe that you really just need a hug. And I've been public enemy number one ever since I learned to kill them with love. I am a psychotic serial lover. Seriously considering only complimenting our mothers because whether you like it or not, I am your brother. There you go. There's a, I'd love to listen to the rest of that poem, but uh, Buana Mohammed, it's from a TED Talk. I'm sure you can look it up, and it's uh, Kill, Them with the, Kill Them With Love. That's the name of the poem. So let me continue on this whole conversation about killing people with love. So about, uh, I don't know, four or five days ago, I guess, I was coming out of a shopping shopping area, one of those little strip malls, you know, kind of at the corner of a corner of a main street and another street. Uh, I had to go through the, the, this little mall to get something, and then I was going to go and get some gas at the local gas station right at the end of this little strip mall kind of thing. Yeah, you get me? And when I got there, coming around the corner, I was able to see that, um, that the the the, there was a, a whole bunch of cops there, like a whole bunch of cops there. And um, I, w I noticed that the, the, the cops themselves, right, the cops themselves were standing there, uh, three or four of them, two or three police cars, and they were around an individual. Looked like a guy and having some difficult times, possibly having some, some trouble in terms of his uh, uh, in terms of his. Uh, mental health you know it looked like he was definitely struggling and these cops were talking to him you could see he was agitated kind of pacing back and forth one foot to the other side to side as some do when they're in this situation you've never really seen anybody um in 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 custody or in front of police sometimes they they most often <laughs> they get nervous uh, we all we all do right in front of uh, police, especially if they come in in police cars and they surround you, and uh, there's five or six of them, and there's just you. So he was pacing, clearly having a difficult moment. Um, my guess is he was struggling with some mental health issues, maybe some substance abuse issues. Um, and um, I noticed this, so I, I drive through because I'm the kind of guy that kind of stops and watches to make sure everybody behaves themselves because I kind of figure that's part of my role in life is to try to do what I can to make everybody's life a little bit better if I encounter them. Anyway, that get to that another time about me. But right now, I'm coming around the corner. I pull up in front of the gas, the, 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 the island to pump gas. I can see what was going on clearly. I get out of my car. I put my glove on so I don't smell like gasoline. Yeah, can you imagine? Put my glove on. I get the gas, I get, you know, get the, the, the hose, put the hose in my car, start pumping gas while watching this whole, this whole event. Now, there's five police officers clearly looking like police officers, wearing vests and guns and all that stuff. And one cop, nice looking guy, you know, well-groomed, wearing a pair of jeans and a nice uh, sweatshirt of some sort, you know, sweater, sweatshirt. Clearly, he looked like he was working out. You could tell a bullet, he was wearing a vest, a police vest, no gun. Didn't see a gun, didn't see a didn't see a, a nightstick, it didn't see a taser, nothing. Flashlight, handcuffs, nothing. So I'm thinking this is probably the crisis worker. I don't know. Anyway, he goes walking inside the convenience store of the gas station. All the other cops are talking to this guy, calming him down. 
I'm looking inside the gas station thinking to myself and the, 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 the convenience store as part of the gas station thinking to myself, well, this cop must have gone inside. All in my head, right? This cop must have gone inside to get more information. Maybe there was a trans, some, some kind of infraction took place inside of the, of the C store, inside the gas station store. And um, yeah, like that, right? Not really thinking much of it. Then I noticed that same cop, probably not a cop, probably a social worker as it turns out, comes out of the store with two bags of stuff. You could see one bag had a bunch of like Gatorade type drinks in it and some, I think, a loaf of bread. And the other one had, I think, a jar of peanut butter. So it what, what turned out to happen here, I've never seen it before. I've heard about it, but never seen it before. These cops went out and bought this guy groceries, gave him the groceries, and began trying to help him secure a um, shelter. I'm watching all this. I go over to one of the cops and say, hey, listen, is it okay if I help out? Can I, am I allowed to talk to the guy? Yeah, yeah, go on, no problem. I go over and talk to the guy. I offer him a, uh, I offer him a, 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 cash, uh, a cash donation, if you will. And um, he takes it. We start talking. He says, no, no. I said, this guy, you know, I can make a phone call. I can help you out. That's kind of what I do. Maybe I can get you into a shelter. He says, no, I'm going to call my dad. My dad will come and get me, and everything is going to be okay. He goes off with his groceries, right? He goes off with his groceries, and uh, I go up to the cop, one that got the groceries. I said, "Dude, listen, I've never seen anything this nice in my in my life. I like, I can't believe that that this is actually how you guys how you guys function, right? This is like amazing." And he says to me, "Yeah." He says, yeah, but it cost me 45 bucks for the groceries. So I assume he gets reimbursed. But here's the situation. They they diffused what could have been a really bad situation. I could tell that this guy was agitated. And I think had they come at him in, in a normal cop-like way, I think it would have been a very big difference. Very, very, very big difference, right? Um, but it didn't. It turned out really well. Everybody seemed to be okay. And uh, off we go into the wild blue, wild blue yonder. It's not going to be a fun conversation we're going to have because it's a reality and it's pretty ugly, right? So let's just say, let's just say you're somebody making $20, $21 an hour. You know, you're working 40 hours a week, put in your time, maybe a little extra. You know, you pay your rent, a car payment maybe, or a TTC pass or a transit pass or whatever, you know, cost for your motorcycle, whatever. And, you know, you're making the same money now that you made, let's say, two years ago. But two years ago, kind of towards the tail end, tail middle of the kind of pandemic kind of financial mess, right? Ever since then, people who are making the same wage they were making several years ago, only 24 months ago or so, can't make ends meet. You all of a sudden go from making the same, working the same, doing the same job, putting in the effort, you know, taking your holidays, being a good, good employee, you know, showing up when you're supposed to, not taking any sick days, maybe taking a little extra, a little extra home, and it's not enough. And let me tell you, $3,000 a month to live in Toronto, for example, or Vancouver isn't enough. And it might have been close to enough a couple of years ago. But now the cost of food alone 
is enough to take your budget and and totally throw it out of whack by 25, 30, 35% if you want to eat. The issue at hand here is, my friends, is that you haven't done, we haven't done anything differently. But in a very short period of time, the cost of living has skyrocketed. This is not a financial uh, financial discussion type show. We're not talking about how to prepare your finances. It's not my area of expertise. My area of expertise is trying to help everybody, including myself, figure out how to get through the day with the least amount of stress and as much joy and happiness as possible. Period. End of story. However we do that. Work, life, play, you know, work how you, where you work, where you live, where you play, that's, that's all that stuff. But when you can't feed yourself or you have to go to the, to the supermarket, you know, thankfully my wife and I both work. Uh, we both work a lot of hours. I got probably three different things I do. She is steadily involved in, in her job. She's a, an executive with a company. She works very, very hard. She puts in lots of hours. She makes an excellent living. Together we do okay, right? A little better than okay. And it's only in the last, I don't know, little while where when I'm in the store, I don't have to double check the things coming through the the, the cash to make sure I can afford them. It's not that long ago where I can remember from time to time going shopping and not being sure I have enough money or enough room on my credit card or enough access to, to funds so that I could actually pay for everything I've just put in the cart. Fortunately, I don't do that anymore, but I kind of look now by nature anyway. It's kind of a, a way of life. Not, not that I, I'll put something down, but if something seems outrageously expensive, I might put it down and find a cheaper version of it or a smaller package of it or not have it at all. Well, that that's good because you know, for me, it, it sort of works out. But I, I'm not the average person. I'm also not at the age where I have to worry about feeding a family and 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 you know, uh, all the beginning stuff that you have when you're 20 or 30 and, and and so on, trying to build a life for yourself. So I can tell you that you know, even today, looking at at, at gas, you know, trying to decide where I'm going to go. And whether it makes sense to drive that all that way, because it might cost me $20 in gas to go all the way there when, you know, maybe I don't need to go there today. I can go next week when I have to do three or four things on my way. I just think like that. But here's a situation with a woman, right? A, a woman who's worked hard most of her life, and she has to make decisions on what she can afford to buy and what she can't afford to buy. She takes home after her, after her, she earns a, a net, a net income of $22,710 a month, close to $3,000 per month. And her bills equate to 2,701. She has $9 left before she buys any groceries. Now, this isn't a woman who's living in a $3,000 a month apartment, which by the way, is not hard to do in Toronto or in Vancouver, or any major city. You know, maybe uh, some of the other cities not so bad. But this is a woman who's paying $1,600, $1,650 a month in rent. Not a lot of rent. I mean, certainly not by Toronto standards, not by big city standards, maybe by small, smaller town st uh, standards. But if you're living in Toronto or Montreal or any of the major cities, unless you're earning, you know, I, I got to say it, unless you're making, you know, twice that, it's hard to get by. And I don't mean get by. I mean get by. I, I don't mean pay a mortgage, own a home, you know, buy a fancy car. I mean get by. 
You need four or five thousand dollars a month if you've got kids, especially, to survive in any major city anywhere. So here's a situation where this woman, after working so hard, got to the point where she's, you know, got what she went to uh, put her story on TikTok. She posted it on TikTok and went viral. She's explained, trying to bring it, bring it to everybody's attention. But everybody knows, like, it's not a new story. It's a sad story for sure, but it's not a new story. So what do you, what can you do? You know, we got a couple of minutes. What can we, what can you do? So um, one of the things you can do is when it comes, so it seems to be things like food, gas, rent for sure. I mean, rent's hard to, you know, the, the way you get around rent is you find something that's more affordable if you split it with somebody. If you've got somebody in your life you can share it with, you know, may, you know, if it's sixteen hundred dollars for a one-bedroom apartment, maybe it's two thousand dollars for a two-bedroom apartment. It costs you each a thousand bucks, so you save six hundred dollars right there. You go shopping, go shopping in a bulk store, like a Costco kind of store, but you go shopping and you go with two or three other people because it's cheaper to buy twelve of something. So if you go with a bunch of other people, it's only three of those things each. You have to get really super creative unless you're making enough money that that doesn't matter. And I'm not sure anybody feels like that today because even, even, in, even like entertainment lifestyle, assuming you have any money at all left over entertainment lifestyle is, 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 is outrageous. Going out to eat. If you're fortunate enough to do that is outrageous. The cost of going out for, for a meal, let's say, you know, has gone from, let's say, $50 as an example for two people to $70, $75, at least 25, 30% more. So the cost of living is something that we can only overcome by one of two things, making more money, maybe a part-time job. You know, that's what people say, get a part-time job. That's hard to do if you got kids at home. It's hard to do if you're trying to make a life for yourself and make sure you have time for self-care. You know, I know people that work three jobs just to try to have a little extra. But at the end of the at the end of it, at the end of a week, at the end of a month, there's not much left in terms of energy and, and, and room for their own wellness for them. So there's a trade-off, right? So co-oping your investments, co-oping your purchases of food, co-oping your 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 home opportunity if you can if you can share it's a much better way to go family friend you know if you if you have a, a relative that you can move in with and and, and 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 just rent a room or rent a space in the basement especially if it's somebody you know and you can share the kitchen with them and you feel more comfortable you know um, carpooling if you need to drive to work sharing the cost of co uh, the, the cost of gas i mean these aren't i didn't invent these things i'm just suggesting that these are things that we can do to try to overcome the difficult time that we're in. I don't see it getting any better anytime soon. My hope is that wherever you are working, you'll make more money. You'll figure out a way to get a little extra a bonus, perhaps take on a part-time job, something a little extra on the side, something you can do virtually from home. Maybe you can do it in the evenings and on weekends, but uh, just, you know, grin and bear it until such time as this levels off. Um, and I'm not sure when that time is going to be. I can't, I, I wouldn't even begin to try to predict it, but it's tough out there, man. Everything just costs more. You know, a loaf of bread costs more. Eggs cost more. We're going to talk to Catherine right now. She's in Surrey, and she's been patiently waiting to chat with me. Catherine, how are you? 
I'm doing good. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for calling. Thank you for picking up. Look, actually, Leo picked up and just tied me together with you. So what's so what's up? We were you and I were texting. We were talking about your grandmother and back right. We were talking about your grandmother and how she used to cook things for people and yeah. Oh, she's awesome. I tell you, she's I'm everything that anything I am. It's because of her. She 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 gave me the foundation on how to run my household and run. You my kids when they were little. I was a single mother. I, I was a mother at 18, married, got divorced. I was 23. I had two children. I worked split shifts back to back. And there was this one lady. She invited me to this group she had. And there was like 30 women. And they would meet in the basement of this big house. And they'd all be in a circle. And everybody had clothes that they wanted to basically give away. Because you would, you would auction them off for like 10 cents, 15 cents. Like nothing was over a quarter. Right. And they were all new. So all our kids were always clothed. And the thing, the thing that really was so great is that once a month we would put 20 bucks in the pot and then we'd pull a lady from the group's name out of the hat and they had to spend that money on themselves. No way. <laughs> it was nice. wonderful. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, love, I just so that, that's to that, do that. That's yeah, no kidding. That's actually in keeping with our last story about how to kind of get by when you don't have, you're not making enough money. But um, I, I didn't think that's where you're going to go. I thought you were going to say you put the money together at the end of a month, and you all got together and had a big, nice, fancy meal. But it was nice that once a month everyone got to take it home with them. Uh, and they had to bring the receipt to prove oh, they spent it on nice. themselves. That's so that cool. Nice. I love it. That's the coolest story. Thanks so much for sharing. You're <laughs> Thank awesome. Thank you. Call, call you some too. other time. Please do. Thank you. That'd be great. That's yeah, my friend Catherine in Surrey. Um, what a beautiful story. So here we're going to go. We're going to have a conversation now, um, and we're going to talk about this guy. Okay, 68-year-old guy, worked at AT&T, uh, got his first job when he applied in 1973, worked there, uh, 68 years old, worked there uh, for 50 years. And um, didn't really have a, a college degree, right? He, he, did, he got, was able to get the job. During the time that he was there, um, he had um, a bunch of different jobs. He had, I don't know what to say here. I think over the time, he had uh, 12, different, 12 different careers, 12 different jobs within at within AT&T, something in, to do with their, their technical side, on, on the technical side of, of uh, their uh, their employment and um basically when he retired the only regret he had was that he didn't get more of an education he wanted to get a university education and was feels and his only regret can you imagine what's your regret if you've been working anywhere i want to hear from you if you worked anywhere for a long period of time and you're retired now or getting close to retirement you worked 20 years 30 years 40 years for the same company you have any regrets let me know right now, 877-399-9898. Leo would love to hear from you, although he's busy, but he would love to hear from you. And uh, Or you can share that with me by text anytime you feel like it. So this guy's only regret is that he says he didn't spend the money that was given to him. Uh, currently, AT&T offers eligible employees up to $30,000 in tuition reimbursement. 
and partners with different universities and colleges around the United States. Uh, this is obviously an American story. Um, and he had, during his 50 years there, he attended 150, he estimates 150 different training courses uh, all over the country, all over the United States, uh, some out of the States um, in terms of uh, what's it, radio engineering, fiber optic engineering, synchronization, maintenance, so on and so on, all stuff related to his job function. But they gave him an opportunity if he wanted to. He could have gone to university. He could have gone and had the opportunity. So that's what he says. His only regret after that many years working on this at the same job is that he didn't take advantage of the company's uh, education fund. And that's his suggestion to young people who are starting out in the workforce and have an opportunity to um, to take advantage of the companies. So when you're looking for employment, especially these days, folks, if you're young and you're listening to me, you're not young, but if you're if you have a chance to, to if you're looking for reemployment or change jobs or you're, you're entering the workforce, perhaps um, for the first time, at whatever stage you are in life, um, very important that you find places you can work that are going to help you grow. Grow meaning the ability to learn, expand your skill set. Right. We all want to learn how to do a little bit better. We all, you know, and if the company pays for it, you know, it's a good thing. You may as well do it at their expense because, number one, it's paid for by them. And number two, the chance of moving up the ladder is much greater when your company sees that you're committed to personal growth. People like to hire people that are committed to personal growth. Employers like to hire individuals that are looking to improve their position they're looking to advance not just financially but in terms of of uh, of uh, uh, job skill and and responsibility and so on so can you imagine i mean i've been doing what i've been doing for a very long time my wife says I, my wife pumpkin says that i'm not allowed to tell everybody because it ages me but i'm getting close to close to 50 years dealing with kind of the same stuff right mental health addiction crisis looking for missing kids, find, you know, all that kind of stuff, crisis work and, you know, working in jails for a decade. So I've been around this stuff for a long time. And what I do, what I did and what I've been doing is I've been morphing myself because, you know, really after these many years, it's not that I don't like what I do. I, I love what I do and I think I'm very good at it. And I think that uh, I'm able to help a lot of people pretty, uh, pretty, uh, quickly in terms of my interactions with them. <clears throat> Certainly that's my attraction to radio. So I'm hoping I can, I, I can reach out to you and have some impact in some positive way or, or, or reach you in some positive way that helps, you know, maybe uh, provide some insight or maybe get you thinking about something or maybe stimulate a discussion at your table about a particular subject, whatever. That's my goal, right? Let's have a little conversation here about me for a second. But from your perspective, you want to work places, you want to be involved in situations, you want to get involved in situations, whether it's part of your work life or part of your hobby life or your personal uh, time, stuff that helps you advance and grow, right? Number one, you get a better job, make more money. We talked about why you need to make more money, obviously, if you want to be able to enjoy things today or have a decent meal and take your kids out to to something like, uh, you know, go to go to a fast food place for some burgers. You take three kids and two adults for burgers, man, that's a $65 deal. It's not like it used to be 40 bucks everybody eats. Not like that anymore, right? So advancement's a good thing. I like it. So what I do is I've been you know, morphing myself over the last number of years, uh, 
towards a balance of therapy and crisis work and coaching and speaking and radio. And, you know, so I, I, I kind of mix it up a little bit just to give, keep it fresh. Right. But I'm learning constantly how to be a better broadcaster, how to be a better host. I'm learning constantly how to be better at my craft. I'm, I'm trying to be, learn how to be a better speaker. I'm learning how to, you know, be a better coach. So I, I'm, I'm constantly looking for the ability to grow. And I think that that's something we can all do. Um, even in retirement, you know, people say, well, I'm retired. I'm going to take it easy. That's the time to find your 2.0, you know, figure out what Billy or Sarah or Bobby or Joe 2.0 looks like. Cause Yona 2.0 from my perspective is awesome. I can hardly wait. I could do another 20, 25 years like this before I get bored again. Well, let me tell you something. Some of the snack foods we eat, yeah, I'm with you, man. I I eat it too. Well, many people don't understand that some of the junk food that we eat, so what we call junk food, right? So after this whole Halloween experience, did you hand out candy this year or did you go for something healthier, right? Did you hand out apples instead of chips or raisins instead of chocolates? Hell no. Kids don't want to come to your house and get an apple. Who wants to do that? And by the way, the, everybody's concerned now. They found... Needles and and and, and uh, a nail and some chocolates here in Toronto and who knows every year there's something right so you have to think about what we're eating it has a lot to do with um, you know has a lot to do with uh, your mental health your physical health you know what you eat and how you eat it has a lot to do with how your day turns out right so we're talking here about a junk food addictive warning label. Uh, that's going to be put that are being put on certain foods to help end obesity. That's what a major review is finding. Uh, the labeling they're labeling foods like chips, chocolate, ice cream as addictive to try to curb the obesity rate uh, in North America and the United States in particular. Uh, they're liking they're likening uh, tobacco and alcohol to some of the foods that we consume, especially that are high in refined carbohydrates. So that that and they're they're high in fat and carbohydrates. It meets the criteria and diagnosis of substance use disorder. Can you imagine? Right? A bag of chips, candy bar, tub of ice cream. Yeah, you might have a substance issue. So they estimate that the the review shows that seven adults and one one in seven adults, excuse me, and one in eight children are hooked on ultra processed foods. Could you imagine? It leads to intensive cravings, withdrawal symptoms when you don't have them. I don't know about you, but I know a lot of folks that try to give up coffee or give up candy or give up, you know, a certain kind of, of uh, snack food. And after not having it for a period of time, they, 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 they kind of, you know, look for it in terms of their, you know, they say on the street, if you're looking for a drug, you're jonesing for it, right? You're, you're looking for a fix. People look for their junk food fix. Lots of people do it on a daily, Right. I know people that have two or three uh, bottles or, or cans of Coke in, on a daily basis or, or you know, and, and eat all kinds of garbage food in between, right? But kids, kids in particular, we have to worry about. And adults as well. We're looking at, at the rate of obesity in North America is very high. Um, the, you know, the average weight is, is um, increased significantly when uh, research is done. And it's important to understand what it is that, you know, to look at what you're eating enough to know that, you know, that even though it tastes really good, 
um, it's probably not good for me. And by the way, that includes, and I've done this whole thing. Okay. I've done the veggie chips and the, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the, the salted vegetables that they turn into sticks and chips and, you know, puffs and things like that. They're, they're really, they're really not as healthy as they appear to be. Trust me. I've tried to find a healthy snack to eat at night. And there's no such thing. My wife says just eating at night's not good for you. But that's a whole other conversation, right? Well, California, frankly, became the first U.S. state to ban cancer-causing food additives. So an example, for example, what they're saying here, let me give an example. The study, the international researchers analyzed 281 studies from 20, 36 different countries and found that ultra-processed food addiction is experienced by 14% of adults and 12% of children. Whereas natural foods such as fruit, vegetables, um, meat, and fish tend to provide energy in the form of carbohydrates or fat foods, uh, which go through the uh, industrial, which do not, or I'm sorry, are, provide better energy, I'm sorry, than foods that go through the industrial processing um, uh, process or the techniques necessary to uh, put them through, um, you know, the, the processing keeps them longer, right? It provides longer shelf life and so on. The example of a portion of salmon and apple in a chocolate bar. The salmon has a carbohydrate to fat ratio of zero to one, the apple one to zero. However, a chocolate bar has a carbohydrate fat ratio one to one, which appears to increase food's addictive potential. So chances of being addicted to chocolate bars much greater than being addicted to a portion of salmon or a chocolate or or or, uh, or an apple, right? In, in this particular uh, study, that's what they're talking about. So things with refined sugar. I mean, we know all this stuff. Ultra processed foods have a higher level of both um, the fats and the carbohydrates, and the combination has a different effect on the brain. Studies suggested that refined carbohydrates or fats evoke similar levels of extracurricular dopamine in the brain. To, to those seen with addictive substances as like nicotine and alcohol. So those types of foods tend to give your brain the same buzz or do the same thing, bring out the same chemical changes, right, as, they, as does alcohol and tobacco. So the speed at which the foods deliver the carbohydrates and fats to the gut could also play a role. So depending on your on your metabolism, it has a lot to do with it. Um, and food additives are not uh, thought to be addictive on their own. However, uh, they combine together can provide addictiveness of ultra processed foods. So um, with further careful research is needed, they say in the study uh, to determine the exact mechanism for which these foods trigger addictive responses. Okay, so ultra processed foods like breakfast cereals, cakes, yogurts, make up more than half of the average British diet, according to a study. And experts believe that uh, recognizing foods high in carbohydrates and fats as addictive could improve your health and make changes to uh, youth and how they interact with food and so on, right? So understanding that if you're eating stuff that's not good for you, it impacts us in a lot of ways. So the physiological way it does, the physical way it has an effect on us. So, for example, if you eat something, you know, you're looking for energy and you have a chocolate bar, it might give you a boost and then all of a sudden you crash, right? It's very similar to drug activity. You know, you get high, you get your first fix. And then when you're finished and when the fix starts to wear off, you crash. They got to get high again. So, for example, things like meth, drugs like methamphetamine have a very quick burn-off rate. You get a buzz for a bit, and then you got to get another buzz. The same with crack cocaine; it, it's very short-lived, and you need a, you need a high 
You need to get high more constantly in order to keep that buzz going, if you will. Same too with a lot of these foods. So I don't know if having something marked would make a difference. I think it might for me, for sure. I would have a real hard time feeding my grandchildren something in a uh, in a bag that's marked could potentially cause cancer or potentially addictive, even though I make, may make a judgment call that that's not the case. But I, I think just labeling stuff is a good start by letting people know that what they're eating may look like a simple bag of chips. But, you know, if you're eating one of these or two of these a day or you're eating a party-sized bag of chips throughout your workday at your desk, probably not good for you. And when you take those chips away or the chocolate away or the candy away, there is definitely a withdrawal period, 100%. Anyway, enough said. Be careful. Make sure you look at the labels. Make healthy choices, smart decisions, both for you and for your children. By the way, you wouldn't feed your animals anything silly like that either, right? And if you do, you should stop immediately. It's not good for them. I am about to share a story with you um, with an amazing uh, young lady. She's our guest, and it's her story. But before we get into the whole story and have her share uh, within uh, the restrictions of what we're going to talk about, because we're not going to ask her to relive her trauma. I don't think that's reasonable or necessary. But imagine the worst day of your life. In this case, the worst night of her life. Something happens, you're somehow assaulted, whether it's sexually assaulted, physically assaulted, uh, you know, in some way beaten up. Imagine. And then you're somewhere where this takes place. For example, in this particular case, on a college campus, university campus. Now you're trying to tell people, trying to get some help. You're trying to, you know, let people know what happened to you. And you go and you, no one listens to you. And, and, then, and then you go to other places where they tell you to go and then no one listens to you. And then you, you try to get some justice and you really can't. Well, I can tell you, I've worked with some patients, one in particular not that long ago, who over a two and a half year period while, while the trial went on for her rape case, had to continue to see her abuser three days a week at school. And even with mental health letters and letters from my team and from psychiatrists and so on, the school would not accommodate her need to learn from home on those days so she wouldn't have to interact with her abuser. Needless to say, her mental health was clearly um, uh, affected and substance abuse took place and so on. Thankfully, it all kind of worked itself out. He was convicted. She's able to continue school and so on. But a difficult, horrific day just facing your abductor, your, your, your abuser in whatever form. In this particular case, my guest, who's, my guest who's going to join us right now for 10 years fought to get justice. And at the end of the day, she was successful. She joins me this evening. Her name is Stephanie. Uh, her maiden name was Hale, but now is, her name is Sparks. She's married, happily married, I'm sure. And she joins us this evening. Stephanie, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. What an amazing young lady you are. Now, I don't know how old you are, but compared to me, for sure, you're young. Um, what an amazing young lady you are. And I got to tell you, after almost 50 years of dealing with people in crisis and assault victims and, and, and victims of, of human trafficking, uh, the fact that you stuck with this for so many years to get what was right for you, says a lot about the kind of person you are, and I want to take my hat. I'm not wearing a hat, but I'm taking my hat off to you anyway. So <laughs> Thank um, you. you're very welcome. You just have to – and I'd hug you if you were here and I was allowed to. I'd, I'd, I'd give you a hug. I'd ask first, but I'd for sure – Oh, I'm a big a hugger. <laughs> oh, perfect. So I'm, I'm hugging you virtually. Um, you know, so 
you know, skipping over the, the nitty gritty, because I don't think that's very important. I, I, I mean, I'm sure it's important to, to you, but um, I think you've lived enough of the story. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you, you, were, you were sexually, physically assaulted at, at, at school and you went on a, a battle to try to convince people. So without reliving the whole situation, take us through, you know, you, you found you, you realized that something had happened to you. And what did you do next? Um, well, initially, I had reported it to a few different departments at the university, including health and wellness, um, the engineering advisor, and my residence advisor and whatnot. And, of course, all those avenues, unfortunately, ended up going nowhere. Um, and the turning point for me happened when I reported a later incident in third year involving a photographer, and that incident was taken much more seriously than my report of sexual assault, and that kind of you know, raised my eyebrows, and um, I wanted to know why you know, why there were different levels of response and why I didn't receive an appropriate response to my earlier report. And what happened? Um, <laughs> I was actually offered something by the dean at the time, Dr. Spiro Yanakopoulos, who unfortunately shortly passed away afterwards, but um, he wanted to provide me with legal support to make sure that this student was expelled um, from campus. And then when I came back to take him up on his offer after going on medical leave, um, learned that he had passed away and was referred to the NAM process, which is what I ended up going through. So for how long were you running around the campus trying to get somebody to believe you? <laughs> Three years. Wow. So the, I guess my, my first question is, what kept you? Was it anger, frustration? Like, tell me what the emotions were that drove you through the process to keep going, especially in the beginning. Mm. Oh, that's such a good question because I definitely was, uh, um, my parents really wanted me to pull out of school. They were like, you don't have to be there. Yeah, you don't want to yeah. be there. We will get you enrolled someplace else. And yeah. um, to me, that to me that felt like that, um, you know, that he was winning, that, you know, yeah. that the dark side was winning and that that was what, that was what they wanted. That was the effective thing to silence me. And, and I said, no, that's, that's exactly that's exactly what they would expect me to do. And, and I'm not going to do that. I came here to go to school and I'm not going to let anything get in my way to do that. Well, ultimately my own mental health got in the way, but yeah, on principle at first I was like, Nope, like I didn't do anything wrong. I'm not leaving. You know what? That's, that's very special. Where does that come from? Like, give me some background uh, in terms of your life, your life kind of before, before uh, you know, you, before you were assaulted, um, I mean, were you? Are you the kind of kind of kid, or the kind of person growing up that you know was determined, and you know, if you get something in your head, you stick with it until it gets done? Is that just who you are? Uh, oh, definitely. I, I very much take after my father, who's a military man, and, and being yeah. an Air Force brat, moving around a bunch. Um, yeah. What other people thought of me wasn't always first on my mind because I never got to make a lot of friends and have them for a long time. So I was always out adventuring with myself and my brothers. That was all I needed. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and then having that role model of, you know, a, a man who sticks by principle and lives by it every second of every day instilled in me a drive and, you know, the ability to not back down when things get tough. So you, um, this took place at the University of British Columbia and uh, the Okanagan campus, which is uh, I've, I've been there. It's a beautiful campus, um, mm -hmm. and you, you, you know, traveling that campus for the three years of of getting people to try to understand. Um, and meantime, the bad guy's still around, right? Um, how did you? Yeah. How did how did you kind of get your head around being in the same space that he might be in? Uh, how did you protect yourself, so to speak? Oh, that was definitely one of the trickier parts, uh, especially once I um, was on medication for it. I ended up on 
anxiety and depression meds and had negative responses to those. So those really limited my ability to to feel like I was protecting myself instead of helping. And it really came down to um, ultimately I ended up avoiding a lot of classes, but in ones where I felt like, oh, I really have to be there for that lecture. I would make sure that I was sitting behind him slash close to a door um, to make sure that I, you know, that I felt like I had some sort of power in those situations. So you talked about you and your brothers going out and hanging out. Um, I can imagine if you were raised by a military dad, they were too. What kept your brothers from what kept your brothers from wanting to take this guy for a long drive somewhere? <laughs> I don't think anything did keep them and they I oh yeah, they called me up and they're oh we've got plans, you know, you you give us the word, sis, and you know, all that kind of brotherly energy. Um yeah. but but they really just wanted to have my back and uh and, and knowing that they you know, that they have that level of protection for me and that they you know, that they would start a war for me kind of thing. That was that was all that I needed from them. We're here together with my guest. Her name is Stephanie Sparks. She was known as Stephanie Hale when this this story broke in. She was at uh, a first-year engineering student at UBC back in, in the Okanagan uh, campus, and uh, she had a traumatic event, a terrible event. She was assaulted and um, took forever to get anybody to pay attention to her, but worked at it and stayed with it and hung in there and tolerated the questions over and over again and having to relive the story. I mean, as a therapist, we tell people it's really you know important that you try to move on. We also tell people, and Stephanie is a great example, that you have to go from victim to advocate and if you want to overcome uh, the adversity. Stephanie, welcome back. Thanks for hanging out with me. Um, you know, the, fight, the strength that you found uh, to fight the injustice around the same time as your mental health was was at risk, and you know the story goes on to talk about how you felt uh, you were at risk of self harm. You wanted people to check on you. Um, did you find that the campus was uh, understanding in terms of at least looking out for your interests after the story was broken, uh, regardless of, after you broke the story, so to speak, uh, regardless of the outcome of the the lawsuit itself, or did the university stay with that uh, more staunch, uh, standoffish kind of approach? Are you talking about like after I went through the NAM process, like in 2016, or just like yeah, back when I yeah, first reported yeah, it's, in 2013? It's, yeah, oh, when, um, when, when, when you were asking for wellness checks and stuff while you were at school and you were concerned about self-harm. Oh, um, yeah, like I, I was just getting those once a week from my residence advisor, and those those did help a lot. I was really grateful for his check-ins. Although I, when we were going through some of the evidence um, in court later, learned, I don't know why it was necessary for him to include that, but that he he didn't believe my story and that colored my memory of all of those check-ins after the fact which was a little right. bit unfortunate but at the time um they were they were good for me and and that's really the nature of your whole fight here is to make sure that the story gets heard and believed is that kind of the root of 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 the cause here that you and i have to call it a cause because you were fighting for more than just your own uh, your own justice mm -hmm. here. Um, you know, is, is it, is it not, is, is the most difficult part not being heard and not being believed? Is that what made it so tough for you in terms of mental health and such? I think it was more so the reality that, that it was so normalized and so okay. And why are you making a fuss about this? And can't you just be quiet like everybody else? No one else has gone through the NAM process with this, but you, you like, it was, it, it felt like I was, made out to be like some major complainer when to me it was just very basic stuff of like we shouldn't have to work with people who attack us like that that's that's why there's a student code of conduct that's why we sign these agreements 
that's why we, you know, trust that you're going to protect us and keep us uh, in safe learning environment. So um, knowing that all of that was just talk wasn't good enough for me. Uh, and I, I needed to change it for, in, in my mind, my, my future daughters. I was like, I'm not okay with that, this being the situation that they're presented with for university. Yeah, you're no kidding. I know a lot of parents that are very concerned about sending their kids off to school, uh, young girls in particular. Um, you talk about the NAM process. Can you explain to my listeners in a little bit of detail what that, uh, what that is? For sure. So uh, prior to 2017, before BC implemented the standalone sexual assault policies, the only policy that UBC had for uh, non-academic misconduct, which is what NAM stands for, um, is the yeah. NAM process. But it's it's the same process for if students are caught vandalizing lockers and and desks right. and stuff like that. It's it's really intended for property damage, uh, and the, the only parties involved in the university's eyes are the university and then the the student whose conduct is in question. So I was strictly treated as a witness of my own rape, which is where uh, a lot of the issue started. <laughs> Yeah, actually, at one point you went, you sought help from someone, uh, and they weren't able to help you because they had an interact. They had some conflict because they had an interaction with your abuser. Is that? Is that? Oh what yeah, I the read first the counselor. Yeah, yeah, the first counselor I spoke to let me know that she couldn't see me because she was counseling my rapist for the for the same incident. Oh, God, <laughs> and why was she? Why was she counseling the rapist for the incident? Did he? Did he make it clear that he's the one that raped you? Um, I believe so. Yes, yeah, she said that he, um, yeah, was coming to her with. I, I can only assume his feelings of guilt and wanted to deal with his emotional turmoil. Have you ever have you talked to this person since then? I mean, as part of the the trial or as part of the the hearings and such, have you? I mean, did did it, I mean? I don't even want to give him a give him any breathing room here. But did did he actually work towards trying to be a better person? Do you think? I believe so. I like I did confront him a number of times on campus afterwards because we were in we were in the same study group and project group and stuff in first year. So yeah, I, yeah. I I spent many hours a day with him afterward yeah. directly afterwards and uh, and <laughs> let him know on more than one occasion. You know, you look at me sideways and you know I, I'll tan your hide kind of thing. And so I, I think that um, I think that initially maybe a bit of fear motivated him in the beginning. Um, but I, I was told afterwards when the complaint finally made it to the NAM process and he was called in for questioning, um, you know, members of the UBC stressed that he, you know, he was he was absolutely in a wreck and just in total tears and that they provided or offered him support people and stuff like that. So, you know, there is a bit of con um, consolation knowing that you know, he, he is affected. He's not, you know, he's a human being. He doesn't feel nothing over his own actions. And that I mean, that, that, I'm sure that helps a little bit. Right. And, and, mm -hmm. and can I, can I ask if he was, was he fueled by alcohol or drugs or was this just a bad guy? And this just what happened. I, alcohol was involved. And I do think that, um, that, that definitely played a factor. Yeah. It sounds like, it sounds like somebody did a really horrible thing. And, uh, once called out, realized, oh, my God, I can't believe I was such an animal. You, you got to hope for that anyway. Okay, enough about him. Yeah. He's, taken up, he's taken up way too much of your time and certainly way too much of my time. Um, so have people reached out to you since you've made yourself public? You've, you, you've made this, you know, you let people know your name. You know, you're on the air talking to me, which is just awesome. I, I can't thank you enough for, for, the, for your bravery. Have others reached out say, hey, you know, way to go, Steph. Like, you know, good job. And, you know, we got your back. And thanks for thinking of us. 
Are, are you getting feedback from from folks that know your story? Yeah, yeah, I got a lot of feedback right after I posted my GoFundMe the first time, and uh, I was surprised at the number of women that not only were emailing to say, "Hey, thanks for doing this," um, you know, we appreciate it, but a lot of women that were going, um, "I wanted to do something similar, but I didn't have it in me." My story is basically the same as yours, and knowing that you're fighting it gives me enough peace that I can move forward. Um, and that felt like it felt like I was carrying more than I felt I could carry at the time. Um, but what 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 gifts that those women um, and men, you know, to send me those words? Yeah, amazing. Um, so the Human Rights Tribunal worked out. There was a financial uh, a financial settlement, which was very very minor, frankly, uh, compared to yeah. others I've seen. Um, what's what's come from it though, in terms of change? That I know was really important for you. You were looking for change as a result of this, not just a, a financial uh, ending here. Um, I, I, do you think that there's going to be change made as a result of this of this ten year battle and your success with the Human Rights Tribunal? Oh, absolutely. Um, even before the decision came out, uh, I was aware of a precedent that had been set where um, UBC had argued that it. It, it didn't have liability in this case because the incident happened in a dorm room, which I guess they wanted to say wasn't considered educational property or a learning environment, rather, and uh, the tribunal rejected that. So I feel like already right there, I was like, oh, that's that's lots of change for the future. Um, but something I didn't I didn't even think about until I've been reading some of the articles that have come out since the decision. And because I just wanted to change it for students. You know, that was yeah. kind of what was in my mind, make university better, make university better. And then. Yeah here it is, the decision's out, and my lawyer is making comments about how this is not only going to change every post-secondary institution, but a lot of workplaces, and that never even crossed my mind as a possibility. Well, you should sleep better at night knowing that you are, in fact, a solid advocate, and uh, you need to continue to fight for, for the rights of others, maybe somewhere down the road in terms of your vocation. And congratulations to you and Mr. Sparks, your young Mr. Sparks, the love of your life, I'm sure. Um, and you're going to make a great life for yourself. And God willing, you're going to have children because I think you're going to be a killer mom in, a, in the most positive <laughs> way. So, Stephanie Sparks, you are my hero. You are a person very much at your best. And thanks for standing up, not just for you, but for women out there that need a voice and you provided them with it. And uh, you should have nothing but greatness and success and happiness and joy in your life. And uh, you're just a very special person. And thank you so much for being on the show with me and making my life a little better now uh, that I've met you. And for our listeners, the tens of thousands of listeners that are paying attention, I'm sure you've impacted them in a positive way, too. So triple win all the way around. Now you can go get yourself some snack food, but none of that that's addictive stuff if you listen to this show. And uh, we wish you well. And if anything changes, you get involved in some kind of uh, some kind of um, a cause that you want to share on the air, let me know. you got a space with me anytime. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'm honored. Thank you.